Welcome to the AANEM podcast series, a monthly discourse on recent publications in neuromuscular and electrodiagnostic literature, featuring interviews with the authors and other experts, brought to you by the American Association of Neuromuscular and Electrodiagnostic Medicine. The AANEM welcomes your comments, suggestions, and questions. Email them to aanem at aanem.org. Hello, AANEM podcast listener. My name is Chilwana Patel. I'm an associate professor and neurology residency training program director at University of Texas Medical Branch, Galveston, Texas. It is my pleasure to be interviewing Dr. Bhai, who is an assistant professor in the Department of Neurology at UT Southwestern Medical Center and the director of Neuromuscular Center in the Institute of Exercise and Environmental Medicine at Texas Health Presbyterian Hospital, Dallas, and Dr. Wissing, who is a professor in Department of Neurology at University of Copenhagen, Denmark, and the director of Copenhagen Neuromuscular Center at the National Hospital, about the recently published article in Muscle and Nerve in April 2023, on Diagnosis and Management of Metabolic Myopathies. Dr. Bhai and Dr. Wilson, welcome to ANEM podcast. So without further delay, I want to ask the first question to Dr. Wilson. Can you please tell me what means metabolic myopathies to neurologists and how do they disrupt energy production in muscle? Well, uh, Dr. Wilson, classically metabolic myopathies uh, are... are, uh confined to defects in the breakdown of carbohydrates and fat in muscle. Uh, Conceptually, actually, you can look at this uh, more wildly and include uh, patients with mitochondrial myopathy, because obviously they also belong to sort of metabolic myopathies. Classification-wise, they have sort of their own name. So when we today talk about metabolic myopathies, it's really defects in the breakdown of um, fat and carbohydrates uh, in muscle. And um, they they basically lead to the same phenomenon, namely a lack of energy, lack of substrates in the muscle cell. So patients uh, suffer from intolerance to exercise. And I think the details of how you can find out whether it's one or the other, we'll get into that as we go along. How does the energy failure happens in form of resting and exercise? I believe there are different storage systems we utilize when the muscle is at rest or muscle is uh, utilize high intensity exercise, long duration exercise. Can you briefly review about it, please? Yes. So, I mean, typically in these conditions, there, there is uh, not, not so much of a problem at rest. So uh, the, the symptoms typically come on uh, during exercise. And uh, normal physiology you know, dictates that when you start exercising, you almost exclusively in the first minutes, you burn carbohydrate. And the carbohydrate then is your muscle glycogen before you can actually turn on, you know, all uh, and get substrates from outside the, the muscle. So typically patients with defects in carbohydrate metabolism will, will have symptoms very early on during exercise, uh, sometimes really at the very start 
of exercise because they, they cannot uh, break down their glycogen. And, and patients with defects in fat uh, metabolism do have uh, preserved glycogen metabolism, so don't really have that many symptoms early on in exercise. For them, its uh, symptoms typically come on later as exercise progresses where uh, fat uh, oxidation uh, becomes more important. So typically these patients uh, get rhabdomyolysis and so on after a long duration uh, of exercise as opposed to the carbohydrate uh, disorders. Thank you, Dr. Wissing. So next question I have is for Dr. Bhai. So what are the clinical symptoms of metabolic myopathies and why are they often missed by a neurologist? It's a great question. And we, we do see these in clinic quite commonly. Think about how many times we've seen a patient with rhabdomyolysis. How many times have you seen a patient with multiple episodes of rhabdo? Uh, some of these patients may even end up with liver biopsies or kidney biopsies, which were likely unnecessary. And the reason here is that the patient may have lifelong symptoms. And so this is not a problem of a bad historian. Perhaps a better history needs to be taken, right? So a person who's been living with cramps all their life, or they feel that they're unathletic, that they've been in the back of their class in terms of exercise ability or an aversion to exercise, uh, those may be important historical clues that might cue the clinician to think about metabolic myopathies. Uh, they're missed often because they're nonspecific symptoms. These are rare diseases, and there's not much clinical experience with them. Patients may complain about exercise intolerance. When they exercise, they may get muscle pain, can get cramps, can get transient exertional contractures, may even develop mild weakness. But these features, if you look broadly at the population, may be somewhat common, but we can't test everybody. And it's the full clinical picture and how these symptoms have progressed and presented over a lifetime that can give a clinician a clue to say, I should look in this corner of neuromuscular diseases to see if a patient may have a metabolic myopathy. Thank you, Dr. Bai. I think it is so important that you have a knowledge about as a neurologist and help this patient population. So next, I would like to go over is, as for today's topic, metabolic myopathies usually comprise of glycogen storage diseases and fatty acid oxidation diseases. So let's start reviewing about glycogen storage disease. Dr. Bai, can you educate us about McArdle's disease, which is the most common glycogen storage disease as we come across as a neurologist, and the energy deficit in this disorder? Happy to. And you, you bring up a great point here, right? If we, and what Dr. Vissing said, think about these in terms of the energy that's being used to produce energy. And early in activity, uh, in the first 10 minutes or so, we're heavily reliant on glucose or with anaerobic activity, high-intensity activity, or isometric activities. Uh, where the muscles contracted, applying a force. When you think of these diseases, glucose is the primary fuel. And the prototypical disease we talk about is McArdle disease and the energy deficit that is there. Uh, it's labeled as glycogen storage disease five, and it's one in about 100,000 people. The, the median time to delay is almost 30 years, which in today's time seems unexplainably long. And we can really shorten that if we understand the clinical picture. Patients typically present with exercise intolerance early in life. But if you look at past series describing these patients, patients may have been diagnosed with growing pains, 
They may have been given a psychiatric diagnosis. They may have been told that they're just unathletic. But going back, patients have symptoms. They have cramps. They have myalgias. They can have recurrent, and they do have recurrent episodes of rhabdomyolysis. So that's the story for these patients. They start exercising. They cramp heavily, and if they keep pushing, they end up with rhabdo. About half of these patients have fixed weakness, and less than 10% have a normal baseline CK. So normally, in between episodes of rhabdo, these patients should have an elevated CK. There's also the second wind phenomenon that Dr. Vissing and Dr. Ron Haller have done pioneering work on, and uh, he'll explain more briefly in just a moment. But McCardle disease, if we think about that, we can really shorten the time to diagnosis if we suspect it, and then move towards a diagnosis with next generation sequencing, panel testing, whole exome sequencing. Uh, and uh, we can get more to that perhaps later in the episode. And Dr. Bhai, can you also highlight important points for Taurus disease and pompous disease also? Absolutely. So in general, and I, I would like to stress that when we look at these different glycogen storage diseases, uh, they can be challenging to know every detail, right? So the big picture that uh, I would say uh, for clinicians to keep in mind is that one, they present with high intensity exercise and exercise induced contractors. They can have recurrent episodes of rhabdo and then develop fixed proximal weakness. Uh, we discussed the second one from a cardinal and then the CK picture. For Pompeii, typically these patients aren't ones with an energy deficit, but ones that we do classify within the glycogen storage disease family. Uh, what we have with them is that uh, it's a lysosomal disorder and uh, there's treatment with ERT. So when we think about that disease, they don't typically present the same way that you would expect another patient with glycogen storage disease. Tarui disease has an out-of-wind phenomenon, so which again, we'll talk about with Dr. Vissing with the second wind phenomenon, uh, as well as treating these patients. But Tarui disease is a disease of phosphofructokinase, and adult onset forms of this have exercise intolerance, intermittent rhabdo, and weakness. For this out-of-wind phenomenon, when sugar is given before exercise, these patients have a worsening of symptoms because they're not able to use it. So each of these diseases have different features. However, if we think about them as a category, uh, a simple workup can reveal the etiology. Thank you, Dr. Bhai. My next question is for Dr. Wissing. Can you please explain us about second wind phenomena here? Oh, yes. This is a very uh, intrig intriguing phenomenon. And um, it sort of is almost pathognomonic of uh, McArdle's disease and was described back in the early uh, 60s already. And it's typified by a very steep increase in, in heart rate and perceived per exertion by the patient when they start exercising. So there, there's a great metabolic crisis in these patients in, in uh, during this time, which is the time where they are in great need of the gly glycogen breakdown in the muscles, which they can't do. And, and that's why they have this energy crisis. And then after continued exercise, if it continues, and most patients do stop, but if they continue, they will get a second wind, and uh, this is usually at the time point of uh, five, six, seven, eight minutes into exercise, when they, the liver starts delivering uh, exogenous uh, glucose or extramuscular glu glucose 
to the muscles and uh, fat uh, or lipolysis has started. Uh, so if you measure the the uh, catecholamines in these uh, patients, they are very high at this point. So there, there is a high uh, recruitment or a high level of lipolysis and uh, glycogenolysis in the liver because in the liver, the phosphorylase is not affected in, in uh, Magar's disease. And then the heart rate drops dramatically and the level of perceived exertion drops dramatically. And, and the patients can then continue exercising uh, even at a slightly higher workload and feel much, uh, much better. So it's in this very period that we know that patients can get severe uh, muscle damage. And this is where they actually develop their myoglobinuria. And you can sort of protect the patients from this by giving them pre-exercise oral uh, sucrose. Just drinking one bottle of Coca-Cola or other soft drink will prevent them from, from uh, getting into uh, this crisis. Um, are there any other metabolic myopathies where you see this? Well, theoretically, you know, uh, conditions that are proximal to the entry of glucose into glycolysis, you should be able to see this. And indeed, um, uh, phosphoglucomutase deficiency, so the enzyme, which is the catalytic step just <laughs> above the entry of glucose into glycolysis, there you can actually in some patients also see the second wind. But otherwise, it has not been detected in, in uh, any other uh, glycogen uh, storage uh, diseases. Thank you, Dr. Wissing. This appeared to be a review of my early classes of biochemistry from medical schools. <laughs> um, thank you for reminding me and uh, helping us to narrow it down how to diagnose glycogen storage diseases and uh, what are the important points to look for it. Now, just changing the gears here, Dr. Wissing, is it also possible for you to narrow it down for us about fatty acid oxidation disorders? Well, um, as I think I started off saying, the, these disorders affect the, the breakdown of uh, or the delivery of fat. Patients, therefore, are not in such a great energetic problem at the beginning of exercise. But as exercise continues and we rely more heavily on fat oxidation, the patients will get symptoms. And the most common defect here is carnitine palmitol transferase two deficiency. And these patients typically get uh, very frequent attacks of uh, myoglobinuria, like we see it in, in McArdle's disease. But again, this is uh, typically after more lengthy periods of, of, ec uh, of exercise. If the patients have fasted for some while, this will trigger the episodes of myoglobinuria. So only a little exercise will then uh, trigger uh, these ep episodes. Some of the fatty oxidation uh, defects have more fixed weakness, so are not so dynamic uh, as we have, we've talked a lot about, you know, all the episodic symptoms that these patients have, but really you can take the fatty oxidation defects and the uh, muscle glycogenosis and in roughly divide them into those that have very episodic symptoms and McArdle disease is a prototype of that and carnitine palmitrase 
transferase 2 deficiencies, also a prototype. A lot of patients, and Dr. Byors already alluded to this, have fixed weakness uh, as the predominant symptom. And, and uh, Dr. Byors mentioned the Pomba disease, in the, which is uh, the prototype of the muscle glycogenosis that has absolutely no episodic symptoms, but only fixed weakness. But then there are, are several of these diseases where it is a little bit of a mix. Dr. Bai already mentioned uh, phosphofructokinase deficiency, uh, which is a muscle glycogenosis, uh, GSD-7. These patients are typically looked at as patients with very uh, dynamic symptoms, but in fact, uh, they, they can also uh, have weakness. On the other hand, other patients like debrancher deficiency or GSD-3, these patients have clearly have fixed weakness and are regarded as more mostly fixed weakness patients, but they also have dynamic or episodic symptoms related to their uh, inability to break down glycogen properly. And you can see the same pattern also in fatty uh, oxidation di- uh, disorders. Thank you, Dr. Wissing. Just want to highlight one point. When I was reading the article, came across lipid myopathies uh, typically present with more exercise-induced myalgias rather than a cramping that's usually more likely seen with a glycogen storage disease. Can I just uh, intervene here? Sorry for that, but sure, sure. You, you know what what we see in the, the in the because you're absolutely right, Dr. Patel, uh, that it is mostly seen in in the muscle glycogenosis. But when they get this problem with their muscle, we call it contractures. And these are obviously not fixed contractures like we see in the muscle uh, muscular dystrophies. And the reason why we call this and we don't call it cramping is uh, that this is a, an, an electrically silent phenomenon. So this is something that happens with, within the muscle uh, as opposed to muscle cramps, which are not electrically silent, they're uh, neurogenic. Origin, so it's very a very peculiar uh, muscle, um, fixed muscle for metabolic myopathies. Uh, we we call it contractures. Thank you, Doctor Wissing, for clarifying for listeners and me. My next question is for Doctor Bai. How can neurologists efficiently evaluate a patient with suspected metabolic myopathies? What are the tests that could be utilized to diagnose glycogen storage diseases and fatty acid oxidation disorders? Well, as you've heard already uh, for some of the diseases that I've talked about and what Dr. Bissing has described, that there's nuances to the clinical picture, but there's an overarching presentation to this where they may have dynamic symptoms, rhabdomyolysis, or they may have this static progressive muscle weakness picture. And I think what this points to is that while it would be nice to know all the details of these diseases and know by just talking with a patient and doing an exam, that's not sufficient. Right? They, they may look similar. So the way to do it and the way I approach it is to, once you have a history and physical that suggests to you a myopathy, just very, very generally a myopathy, and you start to get the flavor of a metabolic myopathy, ultimately the quick way to go about this is to do molecular testing. Now, different places will do different kinds of testing with next-gen sequencing, whether it's a panel or whole exome, and it depends on insurance and financial access, uh, as well as how quickly you can get these tests turned around. 
Uh, and that can really help you get to a definitive diagnosis. The challenge really comes in with variants of uncertain significance. Uh, but other tests that we do to help resolve this, for example, with glycogen storage diseases, is non-ischemic forearm tests. Right? We're really trying to look at biochemically or histopathologically what can give us an answer to resolve a variant of uncertain significance. And so for GSDs, an NIFT can be quite useful there, as well as a muscle biopsy. And that's useful for both fatty acid oxidation defects and glycogen storage diseases. For fatty acid oxidation defects, biochemical tests like acyl carnitine profile, uh, serum carnitine levels, urine organic acids can be useful. But again, these are dynamic symptoms uh, that patients can develop. So in the state where they're not metabolically stressed, these labs can be completely normal. And so it's best to check them in a, a state of physiologic stress. Perhaps they're fasted or post-exercise or in the episode of rhabdomyolysis. And then for biopsy, we can take a look at uh, enzyme activity with myophosphorylase or phosphofructokinase. And, and then with the fatty acid oxidation defects, you may see nonspecific increase in lipid droplets. And this is all to support if you end up with a variant of uncertain significance that you need to resolve. So what I'm understanding is whenever we order the next generation sequencing, and if we get the VUS results back, these challenges can be resolved with a utilization of other techniques like exercise testing or muscle pathology and enzyme testing on muscle biopsy in some of the cases because of the dynamic nature of this uh, disorders. Yeah, we have to sometimes take a multimodal approach, but once you have a VUS in the clinical story, then the goal is to resolve that variant and to get an answer. Uh, and part of this is if we found something, but pretend we didn't find something. Uh, I think the, the trouble for today is to understand the limitations of our tests, right? There's many different tests that we can do. And genetic testing is being used quite commonly now, as it should be. But not all panels are created equal, and it may be missing genes that are of interest to you. So it's important to be aware of what you're looking for. And then to also be aware of the gaps, for example, with next-gen sequencing, as you might miss deep entronic regions or nucleotide repeat expansions. Thank you, Dr. Bai. The next question that I have for you, Dr. Bai, again, is... What are the potential mimics of metabolic myopathies and how can we differentiate between true metabolic myopathies and mimickers? And I think you have utilized the term in your article, pseudometabolic myopathies. And that, that's the term that's been around and that we use quite commonly, pseudometabolic myopathies, right? So they, they look like a metabolic myopathy and there's myalgias, there may be exercise intolerance, uh, rhabdo is part of it. And so then we say, well, this could be a pseudometabolic myopathy if it's not a metabolic myopathy. So there's several limb girdle muscular dystrophies, myositis, endocrine myopathies that may end up presenting with a picture that might steer you down a path of a metabolic myopathy. But in fact, if you continue to search for the etiology, you realize that it's something else. For example, a dysferulinopathy or sarcoglycanopathy. Uh, Becker muscular dystrophy, right? These other muscle diseases, even autosomal dominant RYR1, uh, may present with a picture that looks like recurrent rhabdo, there's weakness, there's myalgias, and intolerance. But it's this is why I think molecular testing is quite useful, because these quote-unquote pseudometabolic myopathies 
may be on that panel or may not be. And that's, that's up to you to help check and make sure that you're ruling out or ruling in causes of what that clinical phenotype may look like. Thank you, Dr. Bai. And I think there was also one important point was mentioned during the article, particularly about myoadenylate deaminous deficiency. Homozygous mutation in AMPD1 are present in 2% of a healthy population who do not have exercise intolerance and exercise important. So again, points towards that we have to be careful and rely on the history and examination here and putting this genetic testing and all other testing in that perspective to get the appropriate and final diagnosis to help our patient. Absolutely. And of course, the most common cause of exertional rhabdo is uh, strenuous exercise by an untrained individual, which happens quite commonly. And uh, we also joke around that it's uh, also aging athlete syndrome, where I remember what I used to be in my 20s, and it's not the same anymore, but I try and exercise the same way. And pair together dehydration, heat, uh, and you create the environment to have an episode of rhabdomyolysis. And so the differential goes from metabolic diseases, mitochondrial diseases, other myopathies, uh, as well as just normal physiology of someone pushing themselves far too hard. Thank you, Dr. Bai. The next question that I have is for Dr. Wissing. Um, so as we know, this is more energy failure causing uh, muscle weakness and symptoms. What is the role of exercise therapy in metabolic myopathies? I have also the second part of the question, which is how the dietary modification and lifestyle habits helps in the management of metabolic myopathies. Yeah, so I mean, that's a very good question. And you would think it would be counterintuitive to, to have these patients exercise because that's when they actually get their their uh, problem and and some of them for the same reason avoid uh, exercise and have been advised not to exercise but we know and this is also true for all other myopathies where we thought you know you would accelerate the disease if you exercise this is not true and um, like any other muscle you know the muscles of, of people with um, metabolic myopathies need to exercise you just need to do it uh, the right way. Uh, this has not really been studied in a very great detail, but in Magado's disease, there has been uh, quite a number of studies. It, so, I mean, there has been, you know, survey studies showing that patients who are physically more uh, active do a lot better uh, on all accounts uh, compared to those who are sedentary. So they suffer from this secondary uh, deconditioning that healthy people can, you know, also uh, feel, and it's it's really important that patients are are, are still active. So obviously, in Magardo's disease, if you do strength training, you have to be very careful because you close off your circulation, you rely, and you rely a hundred percent on muscle glycogenolysis, uh, which they can't do. So they should avoid normal strength training like, like, like normal people, healthy people uh, do. But careful aerobic exercise is very good for the patients. They should work their way slowly into the second wind. And once they're in the second wind, they can work more. This is uh, beneficial for the patients. There's, I think, three or four studies showing that this is quite beneficial. For pompe disease, this is also uh, beneficial. Obviously, they don't have an energy defect, 
they're more like, uh, you can say, a muscular dystrophy uh, patient. And as we see it in muscular dystrophy patients, exercise is quite beneficial. Again, there has been three or four studies uh, looking at this, particularly uh, a Dutch study that studied 26 patients uh, and did a controlled exercise uh, regimen on a cycle ergometer in pompe patients, so that it was, this was safe, quite beneficial. Um, so, and then you asked about dietary uh, interventions. And um, so these uh, diseases are really interesting because here you can actually uh, do something just with a, a diet in some cases. This is not the case in pompe disease uh, because it's a lysosomal disease. But um, McArdle's disease is a good example. So uh, giving the patients uh, some sucrose before exercise can provide extramuscular glucose to, to the muscle. They are not in the same metabolic crisis when they start exercising. And this has actually been shown to completely abolish the second wind phenomenon in these patients. So they are sort of in their second wind uh, when they start exercising. So this is very helpful. Uh, obviously, you should do this carefully because you can't drink soft drinks all the time. Then you will gain weight dramatically. But in in certain situations, this is uh, extremely helpful uh, for these patients. It's also good for the patients with Margaret's disease to keep their liver full of glycogen because they really rely heavily on uh, glucose coming from from the liver. Uh, so eating uh, starts like carbohydrate uh, and not go into fasting uh, has been shown to be much better than being on, for instance, a high protein diet. A big hype in Magara's disease is the ketogenic diet, which, which is the total opposite. This is where you, you are not trying to help, you know, the sugar metabolism, but you're actually trying to enhance the the fat oxidation uh, in these patients. Th th there's a huge Facebook group in Magar patients who have tried this. And, and recently, uh, actually this year, there was a study uh, uh, from our group where, where we have looked at this in a controlled setting and the ketogenic diet provides small improvements in some of the patients. So this is not a miraculous uh, <laughs> diet, certainly for these patients, but in some patients, it might be helpful. Uh, it's also a quite invasive diet, you can say, because uh, if you're in a family, it, it's really difficult to make a diet with the, the, this much uh, fat in it. So my next question is for Dr. Bai, and that's regarding, apart from dietary and lifestyle modification, is there any role of enzyme replacement therapy or the supplements or other treatments in patients with metabolic myopathies? Excellent question. And, you know, it's important for us to keep in mind because many of these diseases, while we can intervene based off lifestyle changes, diet modifications, exercise, there are certain treatments that can be useful for various diseases. For example, uh, for primary carnitine deficiency, we do supplement with carnitine and patients do benefit from that. Multiple acyl-CoA dehydrogenase deficiency, quite a mouthful, but MAD, it's a fatty acid oxidation defect. 
and we supplement those patients with riboflavin and uh, at times CoQ10 as well. So having those supplements on board, uh, for example, with carnitine with primary carnitine deficiency or riboflavin for MAD, you can get benefit for those patients by directly addressing the either the etiology based off the enzyme deficiency or another supplement that might improve enzyme activity to relieve the symptoms patients have. Uh, we also have Pompe disease where we have enzyme replacement therapy for these patients. Uh, and that's been a game changer for these patients. And in conjunction with exercise therapy, these patients can do quite well. Uh, so these are all features that we should keep in mind while we manage these patients medically. Of course, they can get other complications that are important to keep in mind. But at least in terms of treatment, those are the options that we think about for patients like these. Thank you, Dr. Vai. And I like to just summarize at this time that there is evolution in understanding uh, of metabolic myopathies. And I think that has made a neurologist more capable of diagnosing and treating um, this complex patient. What factors we keep in mind uh, to avoid delay in diagnosis? The, the big picture here is once we simply identify symptoms that might put us down a pathway for metabolic myopathy, where it's recurrent rhabdo or exercise intolerance, or a progressive fixed weakness that patients present with, we know that we need to work up in myopathy. And that may include a metabolic myopathy that may then be a glycogen storage disease or a fatty acid oxidation defect. The specifics of these can be difficult to know for each of the subtypes. However, if we keep the big picture in mind that to work these up, we need to first identify myopathy and then use molecular testing like next-gen sequencing, panel testing, or exome sequencing. That can help us quickly identify a metabolic myopathy that we can then manage with either lifestyle changes or supplements uh, that can relieve symptoms for patients. Thank you, Dr. Bhai. Thank you, Dr. Wissing, for covering such a complex topic for us. We really appreciate you to be here. And thank you again on behalf of me and ANEM Podcast.